said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Lyle Southwell. Okay, so Josh asked me to talk about things that are ha- events that are happening in the world right now. And so when I thought about it and prayed about it, I thought, you know, one of the easiest ways to do that is to just share major stories that we've covered on Faith FM Breakfast Show over the last week. So a one-week snapshot. But before I do that, I want to build a bit of a biblical foundation for uh, where we are at in our world right now and what's actually taking place. So we're going to go to Revelation chapter 14. And sometimes I get a little bit fearful going to Revelation chapter 14 because in today's world, it's pretty politically incorrect to read passages of Scripture like this. But then I thought, you know what? I'm at 3 a.m. Ride Church, right? So three angels' messages. So this church, other churches might have a bit of a nervous flinch about Revelation chapter uh, 14, but not this church, right? Okay, so we're going to start Revelation chapter 14, and I'm actually going to read probably the... um, Well, Revelation 14 contains the strongest language that you find anywhere in the Bible. There is no warning anywhere else in Scripture where the Bible speaks with as much straightforwardness as what you find here. Verse 9 The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture, into the cup of his indignation, etc., etc. That's pretty strong language right there. How's that for a start of a sermon, right? Let's Let's just jump right in, right? Put it right out there. That's strong language. And it talks about the mark of the beast. And you go back to Revelation chapter 13, And there's some pretty startling stuff in Revelation 13, the end of the chapter here. The Bible says in uh, verse 15, it had power to give life to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast would speak and force as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in in their right hand or their foreheads, so that no one could buy or sell except he that had the mark of the beast or the number of his name. And you read passages like this, and the average person who is out there in the world immediately goes, ah, just conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory. Nothing like that could ever happen in our world, right? You know, that's sort of what I want to look at this morning. I want to ask the question, you know, is it actually, do we live in a world where it is actually possible for Revelation 13 to be fulfilled? Or is that so incredibly far-fetched that it could never happen? So we'll spend a little bit of time talking about a few things this morning. And, you know, I don't know the mechanisms by which this prophecy will be fulfilled, but I have seen, well, I mean, hey, we study Bible prophecy, don't we? What do we find? 98%, I guess, has already been fulfilled. You can trace it down through history and it's just sort of like fulfilled, 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 all the way down through. And there's a little bit at the end that hasn't been fulfilled. And some of those prophecies, you know, if you were to read them before they happened, 
you would think, no, just no, that's, that's, that's outlandish. That would never take place. And then it did. And so we're kind of in the same position as many people before us, except that we've got a whole lot less excuse. Isn't that so? Because we've got a whole bunch more fulfillment of prophecy than people in the past. I mean, hey, Alexander the Great. Let's talk about Alexander the Great. Uh, he's coming to Jerusalem and Jerusalem refuses to break their alliance with the Persians. And every city that has refused to break their alliance with the Persians, he just smashed it. I mean, Tyre, he picked the whole city up, threw it into the ocean, scraped it back to the foundations and covered it with salt so that grass wouldn't even grow there. That was the kind of person he was. He comes to Jerusalem, he goes and worships in the temple. Doesn't demand that they break their alliance with the Persians. He goes and worships there. Why? Because he saw the fulfillment of just a little bit of Daniel's prophecy. Cyrus the Persian saw a little bit less. And as a result of that, he commanded the rebuilding of the temple that was in Jerusalem. And we've got two and a half thousand years more evidence than what they had. So we really have no excuse, do we? But let's take a little bit of a look at our world and let's see what could be some of the factors that could create exactly what the Bible describes here in Revelation chapter 13. International political fear. International environmental fear. International financial fear. What do these three things all have in common? Fear. What else do they have in common? They're all international and they're all fear-driven. If you go back over the last 20 years or so, what you'll find is that all the crises that our world have, has faced have been international crises. There used to be a time when a crisis would come and it would be on a national level and a country would be having a crisis. And with political fear, you'd have you know, countries that would go to war with each other. And then you had the war on terror. Which country was that? That's the whole world, isn't it? Then you would have, you know, some countries here that would have, you know, things going wrong with their environment, floods or famines or whatever it might be. But now we have an environment across the entire globe that people are feeling is threatened. So this is now international. We used to have countries that would go broke or, the, you know, the, the, the country would go belly up financially, they have massive inflation, whatever. Now we have global financial crises. Isn't that so? Everything that used to happen on a national level has become international. And while we're talking about financial fear, and I think this is probably one that we are sort of, you know, noticing at the petrol pump every time we go to fill up, right? It's a bit of a shock, isn't it? Ouch. Fill my ute up, which has 180 litres of diesel on board. And it's just like, well, that just broke the bank in one go. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about financial fear. And what does the Bible actually say in relationship to this? Um, James chapter 5, verse 1 to 8. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. You've heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the... Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. 
you also be patient and establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. What, does, what should be our expectation that you know, our world will look like just before the return of Christ, according to this verse right here? Our expectation should be the conglomeration of wealth amongst a few small number of individuals, so a number of individuals who are getting unimaginably wealthy at the cost of the poorer people in our world. Isn't that so? That's what we should be seeing happening. And the other thing that we should be expecting as we near the return of Christ is that that wealth that they have accumulated is suddenly under threat. Isn't that so? Okay, so do we see that in our world today? Let's, let's have a little bit of a think about what our world actually looks like. United States National Debt at 621 this morning was that figure right there. Now, I was asked to speak on this subject, um, what was it, about four months ago over at New Hope? Something like that? It's gone up a trillion dollars since then. A trillion Wrap your head around that number for a moment. I can't even, I don't, there's so many numbers here, I don't even know what you call that kind of a number. But it's a big number, right? So then I looked at Australia. I thought, well, let's look at Australia and let's see where we're at. And I was a little bit encouraged because our national debt is only that much. But we're a much smaller country. Australia is actually a tiny country, population-wise, right? So then I looked at our external debt to GDP ratio is 130.82%. And America is a much bigger country. They have a much bigger debt. Their external, G- debt, external debt to GDP ratio is only 104.30%. So we're actually worse off than the United States right now. Just in case you were thinking, oh, you know, we're all good here in Australia. No, it's not actually like that. We've just got a tiny economy. Um, and a tiny population with which we've got to try and pay all of that money back. All right, let's see what else we've got coming up here. The wealthiest 1% of the world have more wealth than the bottom 95% combined. Of the 10 largest economies, three are global corporations and seven are countries. So, for instance, Apple has a bigger economy than Russia. When you think about that for a moment, Apple has more money to spend going to war with Ukraine than what Russia does. You know, that's, that's the world that we're living in right now. That's quite different from what it used to be. Uh, Amico and Microsoft are the bigger than any European country other than France and Germany. And France is basically broke. But then you go to a country like Burundi where they spend 70% of their income on agriculture Uh, 40% of their population do not get three meals a day and their per capita GDP is $270 per year. And so when you start to think about some of the, you know, the environment that we see in our world today, we simply ask our question, do we see happening in our world right now what the Bible predicted? Do we see a few people getting, I mean... We've reached a point in time where the wealthy in our world are involving themselves in space tourism. Because it's kind of like, well, when you've got that kind of wealth, what are you going to spend it on? Well, you know, why not just spend it going to space? You know, why not send a car out into space or something weird like that? 
It is a very different world than what we lived in even just 10 years ago. Um, one in nine of our world's population right now face starvation. Uh, 3 million 287,987. At, uh, that was at 7.32pm this morning. Um, uh, uh, this So far this year have died from starvation. That's more than AIDS, TB, malaria and COVID combined. Uh, child dies of hunger every 10 seconds. And we proved that we could feed the entire world during the COVID crisis because we spent enough money immunising the world to eliminate global hunger. Why don't you think about that for a moment? We spent enough money during the COVID crisis on immunizations to eliminate global hunger. And far more people have died of global hunger than COVID. But anyway. Um, all right, what else we got? Let's see where we're going to next. Okay, let's, let's, let's hold that slide for a second. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Let's see what the Bible says about the return. This is a very famous passage. You all know this passage well. Matthew 24, and really what we need to do is we need to look at these passages and we need to ask ourselves the question, okay, what should our expectation be? What should our expectation be that the world will look like just before Jesus comes back? And does the world meet the expectations that the Bible gives us as to what the world should look like? All right, so Matthew chapter 24 uh, the Bible says, you know, that the disciples have come to Jesus in verse 3 and they've said, you know, tell us when will these things be? When will the uh, temple be destroyed? And then they go on and say, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the world? Signs of the times, very famous signs of the times uh, passage here by Jesus. This is the second longest recorded sermon by Jesus that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. The longest recorded sermon we have is the Sermon on the Mount, and this one is almost as long, and it's all about his return and describing the world, what it will be like just before Jesus comes back. And he starts here in verse 4, he says, watch out that no one deceives you. There's the first time he said it. Verse 5, well, many will come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. There's the second time he said it. You go down a bit further in verse 11. Many false prophets shall arise and deceive many. There's the third time he said it. And then in verse 24, guess what he's going to say again? Watch out. There will arise false Christs and false prophets that shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they will deceive the very elect. You know, I always used to read this passage right here where it talks about false Christs and false prophets and false messiahs. And think, okay, that applies to people who call themselves Jesus Christ. You know, the kind of the crazies like uh, these guys that live up in Queensland. But then somebody pointed out to me the other day. And they said to me, you know, the word Christ, what does the word Christ mean? What does the word Messiah mean? What is the meaning of that word? Because I'm sort of thinking, you know, this, this, this part of the prophecy has never really been fulfilled because people like this don't really get significant followings. But what does the word Christ mean? What does the word Messiah mean? It means anointed, right? How many people have you seen stand up in our world and say, I'm anointed, and so you need to give me lots of money because I am anointed? 
and gain massive followings and lead people massively away from the word of God. I mean, you got Joel Olstein over there standing up the other day and publicly rebuking the Apostle Paul for things that he wrote in the New Testament. And look at the size of this guy's following. Somebody who stands up and says, I am anointed, and brings a message like that. It's an interesting world, and we see it taking place around us right now. Then it continues on. What does it say as it continues on right here? Uh, in verse, uh, let's go back to verse uh, 6. And these are such well-known verses that we all know so well. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be troubled. These things must come to pass. The end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in different places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. So my daughter-in-law had uh, some birth pains yesterday. But thankfully, they only lasted for three hours. And that's pretty, that's pretty easy run, right? Pretty easy run. And the, the midwife was there and the midwife kind of wandered off because it's like, well, you know, we're only three hours in. Midwife came back, had a quick look and like, oh, actually, the head's out. The baby's here. <laughs> so they had a pretty easy run. But, you know, I've got two children. I've got uh, three grandchildren. And so by observation... I've learned a few things about birth pains, and what I've learned is this. Number one, they start off fairly mild, and they increase in severity. Number two, they start off fairly far apart, and they get closer and closer together. And number three, once they start, they're not going to stop. You can't go, I'd rather have this baby next week. It's not your decision, is it? You're on a one-way path. And the fourth thing I've learned, there's four things I've learned about birth pains. The fourth things I've learned about birth pains is that when they end, you experience love and joy in a way that you could never imagine before that event. Isn't that so? For those of you who have children, you will never, you will just, it's just beyond your imagination. I mean, I'm the kind of person that babies are great. They're not really my thing, unless they're mine. And then it's sort of, they're amazing, you know? Babies, they sort of do their, their four things. They eat, they poop, they scream, they sleep. You know, that, that's, that, that's it. But when they're yours, it is just, it's just so totally different. Um, and so what you've got is a process through pain to an experience of love like you've never experienced ever before. And that is a perfect uh, fitting illustration of the last day events. A series of pain moving us towards an experience of love like we've never ever experienced before. Okay, so the Bible talks here about wars and rumors of wars. Let's think about wars and rumors of wars for a moment. Um, I'm going to talk about wargaming. And when I talk about wargaming, I'm not talking about um, what some of you might do, um, hopefully not, in front of a computer screen. Wargaming works like this. So, so wargaming is something that uh, all generals do these days where they will actually game their actions before they put them into place if they can. And so they can assemble a computer uh, model of all of the resources that they have and 
all of the resources that they know that their enemy has based on the intelligence that they've been able to gather. And they can actually game out different scenarios. Very, very useful when you're going into combat to be able to do so. Now, that same technology, that same software has been used by historians to try and get a better understanding of ancient warfare. And of course, you know that there's always going, if the software is available, there's going to be some geeky, nerdy historians out there, I love history, uh, who are going to do weird things with the software, right? One of the weird things that they did was that they took the Macedonian army of Alexander the Great and they pitted the Macedonian army of Alexander the Great against the Duke of Wellington who fought at the Battle of Waterloo uh, back just over 200 years ago. So Alexander the Great from 2,300 years ago. And what they found was very interesting. If you took away the uh, psychological impact of firearms that that would have had on the Macedonian army, if they'd never ever come across them before, if they were kind of used to the idea of firearms, they could have very easily won that battle. When you think about that, that's, that's you know, 2,100 years apart. And Alexander could have defeated the Duke of Wellington with the technology that he had. But then, you know, I mean, what are we fighting wars with these days? Drones. You know, you sit in your office. I could, you, you literally sit in your office here in Sydney and go to war on the other side of the world. That's how it works. And, and, and let's think about this for a moment. If you took one machine gun company, just one machine gun company from the First World War, and what you've got to remember is at the beginning of the First World War, the fastest thing on the battlefield was a horse. The beginning of the First World War, the fastest thing on the battlefield went the same speed as the fastest thing on the battlefield in Alexander's day. So horse. At the end of the First World War, that's just a few years later, you had fighter planes that were flying at several hundred kilometres an hour. It's a big jump, isn't it? But one machine gun company from the First World War could have defeated all of the Duke of Wellington's army. Just one machine gun company. And then what have you got when you go from the First World War to the Second World War? You've got a gap of, what, 25 years? And you've now gone to jet aircraft and one bomber crew of 11 men could defeat every single soldier in the First World War. One bomber crew in the Second World War, 25 years later. Do you see, do you see an escalation, a J-curve taking place here? Did the Bible say this will be like birth pains where it's going to suddenly, you know, it's going to be all of these things, you know, famines, wars, pestilences, all have all been there down through history. Hasn't that so? But the Bible says there will be an escalation the nearer we get to the return of Christ. Is that an escalation? And now, of course, we fight wars with drone warfare and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Let's uh, look at a couple of other passages here real quick. Let's go to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21 and verse 25. The Bible says this, There shall be signs in the, 
in the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth, and on the earth distress and perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. Now that's an interesting prophecy right there. I get into trouble sometimes when I read this one, but you know, it's kind of like this. When I look at what is going on in our world today, there are a lot of things that I don't understand because my knowledge of the world is limited. So there's lots of things I don't understand. So what I do is I take what I learn from the world and I filter it through what the Bible says. The Bible says this. The Bible says that the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Well, the heavens that affect us right now is the atmospheric heavens. The Bible talks about the clouds of the heavens, the birds of the heavens, right? Let's go over to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 18, the Bible says, the nations were angry. Do we see that? Yes. Your wrath is come, the time of the dead, that they should be judged and that you should give reward to your servants, the prophets and to the saints and those that fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those that do what? Destroy the earth. Okay. Based on those two verses right there, what should our expectation be as we approach the end of time? The earth will be in the process of being destroyed and the atmosphere will be wrecked. Right? Yeah? Amen. You've all gone kind of quiet on me. I think I've offended everybody. Um, that's just as I read it. I read those two things right there and I'm like, okay, I don't understand the signs. I don't know what's going on, but I can read the Bible. My expectation is that the environment will be a wreck just before Jesus comes back. I look out, the environment is a wreck. I'm like, okay, that fits. Simple as that. All right, so what have we got here? Okay, this was um, geological disasters, uh, hydrometeorological disasters, biological disasters, all pre-COVID, of course. Um, all of those disasters combined, they all show exactly the same thing. And that's what we see happening. And I'll share some news stories on that in just a moment. The bi uh, once again, if we go back to Matthew chapter 24, let's go there very quickly. What does the Bible say? Matthew 24, verse 12, and equally will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And we talk about depression being the greatest pandemic our world has ever seen, and it is exploding out of control. And so the more we things that we have and the more that we try and solve this particular problem, the worse it becomes. And the more we get away from God, the more secular we become, the more we look at our world and say, okay, we can solve this you know, by doing this or doing that or doing the other. It just gets worse. Until we have reached the point where rather than providing therapy for people, we provide acceptance. And that's just a tragedy. And while we're talking about that, we probably should talk about uh, what else the Bible has to say? Jesus says, as it was in the days of who? Noah. There's another verse that says, 
as it was in the days of somebody else. Who was that? Who was it? Somebody said it. Lot. Okay, so the Bible says, as it was in the days of Lot. So let me ask you a question. Once again, this is a hard question in today's society and culture. But if we ask ourselves the question, as it was in the days of Lot, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. What does that tell us that we should expect our world to be like just before the return of Christ? Immoral. So in the days of Lot, was the LGBT community uh, normalised? Yes. Is it normalised in our world right now? Was it normalised 50 years ago? No. And I'm going to say this. 50 years ago, we were not in a healthy place in relationship to the LGBT community. We saw them as the enemy. And that wasn't right. But thanks to Christianity that has said, as Christians, we need to love everybody and the influence of Christianity in our world... That attitude has changed, but along with that change of attitude has come a normalization. So that now our world is as it was in the days of Lot. It's interesting if you look at this uh, on a graph, um, those who identified as um, LGBT plus amongst the silent generations, interesting to, so this is, this is at the end of the Second World War, uh, they were about 0.8 of a percent amongst the boomers. They were about 2.8%. So silent generation was probably too low, and that was because we weren't in a good place. They weren't treated well. Even by Christians, they weren't treated well. The boomer generation was about 2.8%. Generation X was 4.2%. Millennials are sitting at 10.5%. Gen Z at 20.8%. What I want you to notice here is that the LGBT community is the fastest growing community we have in our world, the most celebrated community that there is, and that they are doubling every generation. And the current projection is that by 2058, the entire world will be LGBT. Now... That sounds funny, and some people will say not possible, except that we have, in history, really solid examples of where whole societies have become LGBT. And while, you, while you're thinking about that, one of the fascinating and tragic scenarios that we are seeing taking place around us right now is that it is no longer cool enough for students to be gay, and so they're going to trans and taking, you know life-changing decisions as a result of that. Um, you've got some girls' schools. I mean, the, the one thing that's been interesting about the trans uh, pandemic that is sleeping, sweeping our world right now is that it has absolutely wiped out amongst young teen girls. It has completely eliminated uh, bulimia and anorexia. Because they hit their teens, feel uncomfortable about their bodies... And it used to be eating disorders that they'd go to. Those have now disappeared and it's now been replaced with um, transitioning. I was doing a Bible study recently with two people at the same time uh, that weren't related to each other, but it was convenient for us to have the Bible study together. Both of them had year six students in the public school. This issue came up and one of them said, you know, my daughter is the only person in her class 
who describes herself as cisgender straight. The other person said, there is no one in my daughter's class because his daughter didn't identify that way, didn't identify as cisgender straight. So, you know, we might look at a stat like that and say that's not possible, but history tells us that it is. And so when the Bible says, as it was in the days of Lot... What should our expectation be? Sometimes I think we read these stats and we see what's happening in our world and we get shocked and horrified by it, whereas in actual fact we should say, well, that's what we should expect because that's what the Bible said it would be like. I think we get shocked and horrified because we don't take the Bible seriously enough. Ah... So many things we could talk about here this morning. How long have I been going here for, here, Josh? I need to finish up at some point. Um, <laughs> we can talk about science. We can talk about the... Uh, in fact... <clears throat> okay, let me do this. So here's, here's, here's what I do. On the breakfast show, and I'm pretty confident that our breakfast, our Faith FM signal doesn't reach this far east. So here in Sydney, the transmitters that we brought were in western Sydney. Um, you probably don't get a good signal over here if you do get one, so I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Who listens to the breakfast show? But everybody can download the app onto your phone and run it through the Bluetooth in your car, and you're good to go. You'll get perfect reception worldwide that way. Um, But I'm just going to share with you. One of the things that we do on the breakfast show is that we have a 10-minute slot in the morning where we talk about Things that are taking place in our world that are related to Christianity. Right? And what are the signs of the times? What's actually going on in our world? When I first started this five years ago, I would get a major hard-hitting story that related to Christianity about once a fortnight. Now, I'll give you, an, I'll give you a small sample of one week. All right. What did we cover this last week? Let's see here. Um, The Chase Bank in the United States closed down a religious, non-profit, non-partisan group. So this group was called the National Committee for Religious Freedom. Is religious freedom good? Yeah, is it something that's valuable to our world and to our society? Yes, absolutely is. So there's this non-profit, non-partisan group that was set up by a former United States ambassador by the name of Sam Brownback, and he set this, uh, this particular organisation up. And uh, a few days or a few weeks after having set it up, one of the workers for this particular uh, foundation went down to the bank. They were a member of Chase Bank, which was one of the biggest you know, banks in the United States, um, and found that the account had been closed. You asked why. He was told the decision had been made at the corporate level that it was secret, it was irrevocable, and that as employees they were prohibited from providing any explanation. Interesting. So, of course, you know, the bank had to come up with some explanation at some particular point because the media got hold of it and started to ask a few questions. So the, they came back and said, look, the, uh, the non-profit didn't provide the requested documentation within the required 60 days, and everybody was about to go, oh, yeah, OK, that's fair enough. You know, you don't do your due diligence, you, do, you lose your account, right? Except that the account had been only open for 20 days. 
And so then the Chase Bank came back and said, okay, we will reopen your account on these conditions. Three conditions. You want to know what they are? Here they come. When you think about this, uh, the, the group would begin by providing a donor list. So you've got to give us your donor list. You've got to give us a list of causes that you support and political candidates. Well, they're nonpartisan, so, you know. And you've got to give us a list of the criteria that the group uses to determine which causes to support. What do you think about that for a moment? So here's an organisation they just set up like, oh, we're here to defend religious freedom. All right, we're going to shut your account down so that you can't buy and sell until you can prove to us that your thoughts align with our thoughts. And if your thoughts don't align with our thoughts, you're out. You're debanked. You know, the Bible says, we talked about it at the beginning, right? No one can buy and sell. That's what it says in Revelation 13. Here you start to see how these things could take place um, and what could happen. Quote here says, if they can debank the NCRF, a multi-faith, religious, non-partisan, non-profit, what happens when they start debanking pastors and Christian business people? It's a little bit chilling, isn't it? You all saw the one about PayPal, right? During the week? You all saw that one? It was interesting. So here's what happened. You know how, you know how uh, there's been a million times when you download something and it's like, do you accept the terms and conditions? Anybody here ever read any terms and conditions? No. <laughs> no. Oh, John does. He reads it. Go, John. <laughs> I've never read terms and conditions for anything in my life. I've just clicked, clicked, accept. That's a really bad example, isn't it? Uh, but I think I'm probably in good company here. Uh, so they, they added a line in their, in their terms and conditions in which they provided a $2,500 fine. So if you've got a PayPal account, $2,500 fine. Anytime one of its consumers or merchants expressed what the corporate brass deemed to be bad information. In other words, if we don't like your thoughts and you express your thoughts somewhere that we get to see it, like live streaming it or on social media, we'll just take two and a half thousand dollars every time you do that. And it's in our terms and conditions and there's nothing you can do about it. So that kind of hit the news media pretty hard. Uh, once again, an example of like, well, if we don't like what you say, you can't buy and sell and we will shut you down. Their shares did fall off the edge of a cliff and dropped 6% in a day and they had to remove that line. But yeah, the former president says it's an insanity. A private company now gets to decide to take your money if you say that's something they disagree with. Uh, Dan Held is the former head of uh, growth marketing for crypto exchange Kraken said PayPal freezing funds for thought crimes is despicable. Uh, yeah. So there was that. Then you had the New York judge who has now legalised polygamous relationships in the United States. This is an interesting one because, you know, when we legalised same-sex marriages, it kind of did my head in because it doesn't matter whether you come from an evolutionary perspective you know, a secular perspective or a religious perspective, it's kind of like, why did you start with same-sex relationships? Why didn't you start with polygam polygamous relationships? 
Because it's easier to build a case for polygamous relationships than it is for same-sex relationships from either perspective. If you come from a secular evolutionary standpoint, there is nothing more immoral than LGBT from a secular perspective. From a Christian perspective, it's just as immoral as anything else that God says is immoral. It's all on the same level. You know, there's, LGBT is no worse than stealing or lying or cheating or anything else like that. But from an evolutionary perspective, you've got to ask, okay, what, where do you, from what point, what morality do you have if you believe in evolution? Uh, and people say, you know, well, well, I'm evolutionist, but, you know, it's wrong to kill. Why? Why is it wrong for an evolutionist to kill? Don't you believe in survival of the fittest? Isn't killing somebody else a moral good? Because if you can kill them, they are weaker than you and you're doing something good for the species. Right? So, from an evolutionary perspective, there is only one Morality, And of course, you know, there's some incredibly successful species out there. The great white shark. Incredibly successful species, right? How much morality does it have? None. None whatsoever at all. It, it, you know, it, even when it reproduces, it has a brief encounter with another shark. It lays an egg that floats around the world and hatches on the other side of the planet. There's nothing that you can see there, but it's an incredibly successful species. So morality is not a requirement for being a successful species. The only morality that is universal for an evolutionist is the necessity of passing on your genetic material. That is the only morality you have. And so there is nothing more immoral for a secular person than LGBT. Uh, but anyway, we started with uh, same sex instead of um, instead of polygamy, which was interesting to me. And you know, you study the history of it, and we talk about the slippery slope. And every time this happens, I bring this up. And every time I bring it up, secular people tell me there's no such thing as a slippery slope. You know, the moment someone says there is no such thing as a slippery slope, you know what? That's a denial of. It's a denial of human nature because if you understand human nature you cannot it is impossible to avoid a slippery slope you're always going to have a slippery slope you know we were just told we just want to live and let live okay we gave them that then they want then they said well we want legal legal benefits the same as marriage and we're like fine have that and then they said that um when they get married, they vowed they would not force it on the states. And then they did that. After they forced it on the states, they said they wouldn't lead to religious persecution. Now you can't open a newspaper without seeing a lawsuit involving a Christian business owner, Christian teachers, Christian schools, Christian adoption agents, Christian sports people, all fighting for their lives in the brave new world of tolerance. We have actually found that it's the most intolerant world that has ever existed so yeah polygamy uh, legalized that now in the US and of course what does polygamy do in a world where you know the same number of 
Males as females is born, it creates a nasty, violent, incel community. It's the result that you'll find anywhere you have it. Okay, so we covered that story. We covered a story about uh, Stacey Abrams. Uh, she's the Georgia candidate for governor um, who this week s- stated that she would solve inflation by killing more babies. Because everybody's dealing with inflation and it's like, we just need more abortions. That's it. That's the solution right there. I just want to say this. I, I said that kind of harshly. We all have a past, right? We all have a past. I get that. And if there are things here in what I'm sharing that bring up things that are going to be triggering or you know whatever from your past, I understand that I really do. These are important things to talk about. If they're things that are making you feel uncomfortable, come and talk to me later. I will set you up with people that, um, that you can talk about this with because th- 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 these are rough things. She went on to say that there was no such thing as a fetal heartbeat. We live in a world where science... It's kind of weird because the secular world used to stand by science. It's all about science. You're empirical science. You can't, you know, and Christianity has never had a problem with empirical science. We love empirical science. It tells us about God. We've had a problem with historical science, but never with empirical science. And so they've always talked about this conflict between science and faith. There's no conflict between empirical science and faith. But now that ideology has taken over the secular. They're like, no, forget science. Science doesn't exist anymore. What I think in my mind is truth. Therefore, I can say things that empirical science says is true. But my mind says other words. And what my mind says is what is real. And now you can come out and say things like, there's no such thing as a fetal heartbeat. And so the solution to inflation is more abortions. Uh, oh, yes, over in uh, New York, they just created a new super COVID that has an 80% kill rate. Why wouldn't you? Um, this story on Xenobots. This was an interesting one. You know what Xenobots are? So this is uh, how healthcare is going to change. And these were developed by Dr. Douglas Blackstone, who's a senior scientist at Tufts University, Allen Discovery Center, he says xenobots will be part of the future of healthcare and that by 2040 healthcare will be unrecognizable from what it was today because of xenobots. Uh, what are they? Uh, these, they're currently in their third generation that have been created by his team. They are self powered robots, they're half a millimeter in length, and they're made from living frog cells and replicated through artificial intelligence. It walks around, it swims, it senses its environment. Uh, Dr. Blackstone says it's difficult to build a tiny self-powered robot of this design from synthetic materials, so they created one out of living cells instead. Amazing, isn't it? The brightest minds in our world right now can't create something that comes even remotely close to a living cell in its complexity, but they'll say, well, our robots, yes, they were created by human beings, but those cells, they came about as a result of a chance explosion somewhere in the dim, distant past. So xenobots, yes, living frog cells, 
that are actually robots, completely biodegradable. They live in water because they're made from frog cells at the end of their lifespan. There's no garbage left behind. These are some of the uh, advantages of it. These are the first life forms that were produced by, that were not produced by natural selection or evolution, he says. They were evolved by a virtual artificial intelligence in the simulation, then brought to life in the real world. Where is science going right now? Think about the moral implications to this kind of an invention. Yeah. Well, we had dire warnings predicted for this weekend as far as the floods, didn't we? They never happened, but I want you to notice that I, from what I've been able to research, there has not been a flooding record that has not been broken here in New South Wales yet this year. We've run out of records that we can break. Uh, Williamtown, this last uh, La Nina session, Williamtown, which is just down the road from where I live, the Air Force Base has recorded 4.2 metres of water for this La Nina. That's North Queensland wet season kind of rain. And basically what they're saying is that the wet season has been pushed south, so now we're copping the tropical wet season, and the cold fronts that we normally used to cop are down off the south coast of Tasmania. Our world is turning upside down, and we need to recognise it. It is not the way it used to be before, and that's what we should expect. Uh, then we had this story. This was either very early this week, may have been late last week, uh, where you had Hanin Zriaka who opted out of the uh, AFL uh, Pride Round, AFLW Pride Round, due to the rainbow jersey. And what's been interesting here in this story is that when it comes to things like morality, the one group in our society that hasn't flinched is Islam. But what has Christianity done? We've buckled and bent and twisted ourselves into every kind of knot that we can to accommodate every possible thing that we possibly can. And Islam just come along and said, no. Thankfully, she was Islamic, so she didn't get the same cock, uh, uh, kickback that the Manly Seven or Israel Folau copped. Um, then you had the Thorburn case where this week Shadow Treasurer Angus Robertson said that, that we need a religious discrimination bill now than more than ever before. And you, know, you, dig into, you dig into the Thorburn case down there in Victoria and here's a guy who throughout his, his career has been very pro-LGBT. But he belongs to a church that he disagrees with and he's on record disagreeing with but there's a connection there. So assassinate the guy. It's, uh, it's a pretty wild world. Then you've got Michigan. They've just put through a... No, they're, they're trying to put through a bill that seeks to define gender-affirming care for minors as first-degree child abuse. That's a good bill. Why are they doing that? Well, the research has come out that irreversible gender-affirming uh, genital mutilation for children rose between 2016 and 2019, cop this figure, by 389%. And this is for surgery that has, there has been no scientific evidence to say that it gives any benefit whatsoever at all. 
And this is a real tragedy of our trans community. They have the highest suicide rate of any community that has ever existed on planet Earth that we know of. And uh, surgery has done nothing to change that. And we're giving this now to children who make that decision for themselves, who self-diagnose, right? And we don't even trust that same child to buy a can of a rattle can of paint at Bunnings. Okay, you're not qualified to buy a rattle can of paint at Bunnings, but you can do this. This is where ideology has taken over our world and ideology has gone just, yeah, crazy. Anyway, I could go on and on and on through the list here, but I've gone on and on too, way too long. Um, I need to finish up and I need to move this to a positive note. Uh, but that's just, that's just one week's worth. It used to take me a fortnight to find one story like that when I first started in Breakfast Radio. Now I get multiple stories to cover Every single day dealing with issues of religious liberty, dealing with issues of morality, dealing with issues of science, dealing with issues of, of uh, you know, freedom around our world. It, our world has become flooded with it. What should our expectation be? I read Revelation 13, and that's exactly what our expectation should be right now. If it wasn't happening, Jesus wouldn't be coming back soon. That's why the Bible says, when you see all these things happen, lift up your, voice, lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Let me skip to the end. Let me go to this one right here. You know one of the great things about COVID? All us pastors, COVID hit, all us pastors were in instantly TV evangelists. But the thing that has fascinated me about the, you know, because all of our churches live stream now, because we all set it up during COVID, and now they all are. Ah, the gospel is going to the world in a way that we have never, ever seen it before. It's going to countries that we have never expected it to go through. We, we, you know, our simple little church right there in Raymond Terrace, where I go, is a church about the same size as this, maybe a little bit smaller, the congregation. And we're getting people on every continent coming into our live stream to worship with us on a Sabbath morning. Uh, we, we, we ran the N.Digital. I don't know how, whether many of you ran, saw the N.Digital that uh, we created up there in North New South Wales. If you haven't, go check it out um, on YouTube or Facebook, uh, the N.Digital, and you can watch all the material that we have produced there. And we have, you know, we're, we're doing this as part of North New South Wales evangelism, and so we're advertising it to our conference. And we're getting baptisms all over the world. And those stories coming back to us from just about every country on the, well, every continent and a bunch of islands where people are giving their lives to Jesus and are coming to Jesus as a result of the technology that is now available. You know, you read there in, in, in Daniel chapter 12, where the Bible says, knowledge shall be increased and men shall run to and fro. That's what it says in the old English anyway. That knowledge is in direct relationship to the message of the book of Daniel and the increase of knowledge of the book of Daniel has caused people to become excited and spread that around the world. And along with that, the increase of knowledge in the technological world has made it possible. Can't separate those two things. But now, technology has increased to the point that men no longer need to run to and fro. I mean, we're live streaming here this morning. You know, who knows? Uh, over there's the camera. I'm looking at the wrong place. Uh, but who knows? 
where people are watching this and who, where they will watch it next week, the week after, next year, the year after. And they will know that Jesus is coming back soon. We have opportunities like our world has never, ever seen before. There was something here that... Uh, let me just scroll down to this one. There's so many stories here. One in three teens believe in the resurrection right now. Did you know that? One in three teens. Is that a massive opportunity for us? 90% of Americans who read the Bible say its message has transformed their lives. Um, but then you've got... 38% of Americans who never read the Bible who said that the Bible has transformed their lives by the influence that it has had on society. There is so many opportunities out there. There's just more news stories that we covered during the week that, uh, that you know, we, could, we, we could go through if we had time. Friends, the message is this. Jesus is coming soon. We're living in exciting times every day. We're going to hear messages that are going to get us down and make us feel bad. And it's all this bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. But it's all telling us this one thing, that Jesus is coming soon. We can have hope. We can have confidence. Because our redemption draws nigh. And when we look out at our world and we see it falling apart, we should take courage because it's not going to last like this forever. There's coming a time in the very near future when the Bible says that Jesus will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet with the Lord in the air. Isn't that an incredible promise right there? A time when families will be reunited, people will be reunited, and that we will be able to serve Jesus face to face. Let's focus on that one thing. Who wants to be ready for Jesus to come back? I do. Praise God. Praise God. Let's, uh, let's say our heads. Father in heaven. We thank you for the promise of your soon return. We thank you that we're coming again. We thank you that we all can be there on that day to welcome you with open arms. And we pray for your blessing to rest upon each one of us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This message was made available by the Ride Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page, 3AM Ride Seventh-day Adventist Church. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.